Are you guys ready for hot mess part two? Part two. You ready? How many of you, how many of you um, experienced a bit of a hot mess this week, perhaps? Just a little bit. How many of you were a hot mess this week? So, I mean, how many of you rode to church with a hot mess in the car today? Don't, don't, don't move. Don't flinch. Look confused. Um, you know, we're, we're exploring over the next few weeks as people move into the holidays, we've noticed that people are experiencing greater stress, greater anxiety, people experience depression, some of the pain of loss becomes more acute during the holidays. And so we just said, let's just dive into this. Um, people traditionally call this season Advent, and it's all about sort of waiting for God to come and God to be with us. And so we said, let's just, let's just find out if God is with us. Let's explore what the scripture says about God being with us in the midst of our mess, that God, he, he doesn't stay away, isolated and alienated and alone. He says, I want to be with you right down in the midst of whatever it is you're going through. And today I want to open with a, uh, a scripture that I just really love. And then we're going we're gonna to get into a story that, that sort of um, illustrates the point that this scripture is trying to make. So uh, I want to read a scripture from uh, the book of Romans chapter 5. And it says this, it says, This is from the Apostle Paul, and he writes a letter. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still a hot mess, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, he says, will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. I like how he kind of goes on this. Like, you might stick your neck out for somebody if they're really, really good, but you almost never do that for somebody who's a hot mess. But God, he says, demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were a mess, while we were stuck in our own problems, while we were rummaging around in our own failures, God was reaching out to us. Now, people get stuck on this word sinner. Sinner, Nobody likes the word sinner. It's like a word. It's like a it's like an old-fashioned word. You don't like it. I don't like because you you know you hear it and you think condemn. You hear people go, "Yes, sinners, sin." You know what I mean? Do you hear that voice, or is that just me? Oh, Debbie, I'll give you a call, and I'm hearing voices. Um, now you hear it and you think you know. But what? But what is? It's actually a great term. It's actually a, a military and a sports analogy that the Apostle Paul is using. It's actually an archery term. And, and, the, and the term actually means somebody who's, who's got a bow and an arrow and they're pointing it at a target. They're trying to hit a target, trying to hit the bullseye in the middle of the target. And they pull back the bow and they let the arrow go and it misses the bullseye. It either goes over the target, it, it, it falls short of the target, it goes wide of the target one way, it goes wide of the target the other way. But one way or another, it misses the target. And so what Paul is saying is like, hey... Jesus is still with you even when you keep missing the target over and over. Even when you fail to meet your own expectations for yourself. Even when you blunder. Even when you fall short. Even when you overshoot. He's still with you right in the midst of it. Even when you do it over and over. We have a three-year-old son, Augustine. And we're trying to teach him not to hit. You know, we've, we, you know, we, We've been play wrestling and play fighting, you know, and, you know, when that was great when he was two, but now he's three and a half and he's getting kind of stocky. I mean, he's getting kind of, he's bowed up, you know what I mean? And he's like, he's, and so now when he hits it, it hurts. Like if he hits you and you're not expecting it, depending where, like if he hits you over here, you're okay. But there are other places that he hits you and like, and, 
and you're like, okay, we got to go down a different path with this guy right now. So the other day, he's, he's playing with uh, Jameson, our nine-year-old, and he's playing, but in the play, he just, so- he just hauls off and socks Jameson. I mean, hard. And Jameson is nine. And, you know, you don't have a lot of restraint at nine. But I got to say, man, he, Jameson showed some restraint because this hit hurt. Um, and, and Jameson did not, did not respond violently. He actually took a sock and went, <sighs> like that was, that was his response. He hit him with a sock, which I thought that's, in light of what just happened, that's not bad. So, um, so, so, so we're talking to Augustine and I go, buddy, listen, you, no long, you can no longer hit. No more hitting, okay? No hitting, okay? We don't hit. And Augustine, if you know him, he's got, he's got like these big, big bright eyes and he's got this just innocent look on his face. And he says to Jameson, he goes, Jameson, I will never hit you again. And like as he said it, I'm, I'm like believing him. I'm like, wow, that was, that was really, I bought that. Like I really, and I think he bought it. But like 10 minutes later, they're playing and things got, you know, and Augustine, whoosh, bang, bang, there he goes, right? Now he's in timeout, right? This is us, right? I'm never going to do that again. That, I will never, ever do that again. I, that was a miss. That was a failure. That was a, and I'm never going to do that again. And yet, here we go. A week later, a month later, you find yourself in the same mess. You go, how did I get here? We used to live, for a while, we left um, St. Louis and went up to this little town called Lancaster, Ohio. It's this little glass manufacturing town in Ohio. And it's just a great little town. I loved it. The great thing about small towns is, like, everybody knows everybody. Everybody's familiar with everybody's family. And, and no matter where you are in the town, somebody probably knows you. And if, if something happens, you get in trouble, they can call your parents. So there's a lot of good things about a small town. But then on the other hand, there's some things that are not great about a small town, which is... Everybody knows you, and everybody's familiar with your friends and family, and no matter where you are, somebody knows you, and if you get in trouble, somebody's going to call your parents. So it's kind of like the thing that's good is also the thing that's bad, and one thing that I remember people saying in this small town, like if somebody was, you know, uh, messing up, drinking too much, or, or uh, lost their job because they stole something or, or running around on their wife or their husband or doing something that everybody just knows is like not the right thing to do. There was this phrase that I remember hearing as a kid and, and, and the folks would say this. They would say, you probably heard this. They would say, well, he made his bed. Now he's going to have to lie in it. You, you ever hear that phrase? He made his bed. Now he's going to have to lie in it. And I remember as a kid not totally understanding that because when I make my bed, then I don't lie in it. I actually go to school. But, but, but I didn't catch the full meaning, but the, 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 the idea came across, which is, hey, you messed up. Now you're just going to have to deal with the consequences of your mess up. That's just the thing. You're, you made the mistake. Now you're going to have to clean it up. And I'm not going to lift a finger because it's your mistake. You made the bed. Now you're going to have to lie in it. That was the, that was the tone. But that sounds a lot different than what the Apostle Paul says when he said, while we were messing up, God loved us so much that Jesus is out there dying for us. He didn't say, you made the mess, now you're going to lie in it. He said, you made the mess, I'm going to come clean it up for you. You made the mess and I'm going to come and, 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 and try to fix some stuff for you. Aren't you glad 
that you can still be a mess and come to God. You don't have to be cleaned up to come to him. In fact, you can't be cleaned up to come to him. You've got to be willing to expose your mess for him to be able to meet you in that, right? So I want to take a moment, a few moments this morning, and look at this story that illustrates the idea that God will meet us in our mess, even when the mess is our mistake, even when, when the mess is the result of our own rebellion, even when the bad situation that we're in is the result of our own stupidity, our own failures, our own missing the mark over and over and over again. Because last week we looked at Job. Job was a righteous and holy man, and we, we learned that God meets us in our pain, in the moments of our deepest pain. He, he's intimate with us in that. But Job was righteous. His, his suffering came from the outside. It wasn't his fault. So, but what about when it is our fault? Will God meet us in that mess? So I want you to follow along with me. I'm going to go through this, a big piece of scripture, and I'm going to try to, try to move through it and bring out some points out of it. Um, it's a story about a, a Jesus going and meeting uh, a woman who was just a hot mess. Her life was just a mess. And it says this. It says, uh, now Jesus learned. So this, this, this picture, uh, this story happens um, right when there's a hot mess going on backstage right now, did, something fell. Um, Jesus uh, was in the midst of his ministry, and things were going great for him. He's 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 catching traction. He's trending. Things are flowing. And it says this. It says Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And they're talking about John the Baptist there. Although in fact, it was not just. It was not Jesus who baptized, but it was his disciples. So what the scripture is saying is there were these Pharisees and the Pharisees were listening and hearing and gossiping about who was doing what in the kingdom of God, right? Who's baptizing more? They're on the sidelines keeping score. The Pharisees had forgotten their mission. The Pharisees had started off, well, like trying to bring people into relationship with God, but at some point in their mission, they got off track. They got caught up in the minutia and they lost track of the mission. Uh, we were at a church a while back. My wife and I were at a church in a different town. And it was a church that had lost its mission, that had forgotten why it existed. And it's one of the most heartbreaking things that you can ever witness if you ever go into a church that doesn't know why it's there. We went into this, this church and we were trying to go to the door. There were these two doors and there was a door going this way and a door going that way. And we couldn't tell which door to go in. This is our first time coming. And so we go over to this door and it's empty and we look in this door and, uh, you know, there are a couple people. So we moved, we, you know, we go in there and we walk in and there was a greeter, but the greeter was like leaning on a table with her back to us like this. And when we come in, she goes, oh, hey. That's when I should have known, like, I'm just going to turn around. Like, I, the message that was being conveyed there was, we weren't expecting you, and we're not that excited about having you, right? So we go in. I won't, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but, but this, is, this is serious. We go in, and, you know, the, the preacher gets up, and they've got a communion table, and they've got, like, a tablecloth over the table. And the, and the preacher gets up, and he goes, now, some of you may be wondering, why this tablecloth over our communion table uh, is white. Uh, because last week it was green, and then in a couple weeks from now it's going to be purple. And then he kind of started talking about the meaning of the different colors of the tablecloth. And I'm sitting there going, like, 
Nobody cares about the color of the tablecloth on the communion table. Like, if I'm here today and I'm suffering because I'm in a financial crisis or my relationship is falling apart or a friend got a diagnosis or, or something's going on in my life, I'm, I sinned and I'm ashamed and I'm trying to find God's forgiveness, I'm not concerned with the color of the tablecloth, right? We can never, as a church, forget our mission. We can never forget that we are here to bring people who are far from God into his love, into his embrace, into his mercy, into his grace. We can never forget that. Pharisees forgot that. And they're counting baptisms, right? Who's doing this? Who's doing what? And, and, and they completely forgot the mission. So Jesus says, I'm out of here. The scripture says, Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, the second line there is very interesting. It says this. It says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now that's an interesting phrase because had to is not something you see attached to Jesus very often. Right? He, ha- he didn't have to do anything. You know? Uh, he's, he's sort of in charge of what he does and what he doesn't do. Right? Technically, Samaria is between Judea and Galilee. Galilee is up here. Judea is uh, down here. So technically, if you want to go to Galilee, normally you would go through Samaria. If I want to go to downtown, I could go through Central West End, or I could go around Central West End, right? In fact, most people, most Jewish rabbis and, 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 and priests would not go through Samaria. They had another path. Show them that map, Naveen. They would, go, they would go around Samaria, right? Because the Jews and the Samaritans were at bitter conflict, bitter hostility, they hated one another. They had, they had, the Jews considered the Samaritans to be total sellouts. And there was just this, this deep animosity towards them. And so most people would go from Judea, go across the Jordan River, go up on the other side, and then come back so that they just cut out Samaria altogether. But the scripture says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. In fact, this green arrow points to exactly where he went, to this little town in Samaria called Sychar. Why did Jesus have to go to Samaria. Here's what it says. So he came to a town in Samaria, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Now here's a little detail that we're going to come back to in just a minute. It says this. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, let me pause for just a minute. Jesus, get this picture. He's out in the middle of the desert. He's in a small town called Sychar in Samaria. He sits down at a well at noon. No one is around. A woman comes, a Samaritan woman comes along, and he says, will you please give me something to drink? Now, there's just a lot going on here. First of all, we start to see why Jesus had to go to Samaria. He had a meeting scheduled that she didn't know about, but he knew about. He had a mission that he had to go take care of. He was going to go talk to a woman who was in the midst of a mess. He left a burgeoning ministry to go talk to one woman who was in the midst of a mess. Now, the problem is, there are a lot of problems with this. First of all, she's a Samaritan. So the the fact that there's any communication between them is not appropriate. It's culturally taboo, right? It should not have happened. Uh, And then the second one is this. She's a woman. And so Jesus sitting down, talking to a woman at a well by himself. There's a lot wrong with this picture. And she picks up on it. 
She, she is even startled by the fact that he's addressing her. So this is what she says. Uh, the, the Samaritan woman said this. You are a Jew and I am. A, and then she stresses both things. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's saying, like, why are you even talking to me? I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of times people that have been wounded start to see other people as a threat, even if that other person is actually trying to help. Somebody who gets hurt gets very prickly. And when somebody comes and and starts to interact with them, they can be pretty cagey. They can be pretty defensive. This woman has been hurt. This woman has experienced pain in her life. And so when Jesus comes along and says, can you give me a drink of water? She's like, well, wait a minute. Now just hold on a second. Why are you even talking to me? Sometimes if you find yourself lashing out at somebody, being defensive, being sort of, you know, overly stiff-arming someone, maybe there's some wounds inside there. Maybe there's some hurts inside there that, that you need to allow the Lord to reach in and work on a little bit. Because a lot of times we just get defensive when there's no need to get defensive. Jesus is getting ready to do something for her that's going to blow her mind. So she says, uh, how can you ask me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her. Now this is, where, this is where we start to see what's going on. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given you living water. Now listen to this. Jesus asked her for a drink in order that he might expose her thirst. Follow this. Jesus does not need, Jesus invented water. Okay? Jesus does not need anything from anybody. Jesus said, I want to come, I'm going to ask you for a drink for my physical body, but that's my opening line because what I'm about to do is I'm going to expose the deep spiritual thirst in your life because I've got something that can fill it. I can quench that thirst. Jesus, this is basically, Jesus, this is, someday I'm going to do a sermon. I don't have it all figured out yet. I'm going to call it Jesus Judo, right? Like, like he, he takes what you think he's going to do and then he flips you over and he gives you this. I, I haven't worked it out yet, but this is what he's doing. This is what he's doing. He's saying, can you give me a drink? But oh, wait a second. I've actually come to fill your thirst, because I know you're thirsty. I know there's stuff in your heart that you're trying to, to fill, and, and you can't fill it, but I can. And then he goes a little bit deeper. He says this, everyone who drinks this water, the water that you're pulling out of this well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, not only am I going to quench your thirst, I'm going to turn you into a spring. I'm going to, tur- I'm going to, I'm going to fill you, I'm going to quench your thirst, not so that you can be quenched, but so that you can be quenched and then the water can pour out of you and quench the thirst of others. Nothing that we do in, in, in the kingdom of God, nothing that Jesus does in our life is just for us. It's always for us to become to come through us for others. Everything in the Christian life never ends with me. God, give me this so that I can have it. Give me healing so I can be healed, right? 
He heals us so we can be a source of healing for other people. He strengthens us so we can be a source of strength for other people. He, 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 he empowers us so that we can be a source of empowerment for other people. That's what he does. That's the flow of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that it comes to us and then it goes through us. Now, this is interesting because um, she doesn't understand what he's even talking about at this point. She's like, there's this great conversation. I had to cut some of it out, but it's all in, some of it's in your bulletin and the rest is in, you can find it in your own Bible, John chapter four. Um, and they have this weird conversation because she's not, she's not understanding where he's going with this. She thinks that he's still talking about physical water. And she's like, oh, I'd be happy to take that water so that way I don't have to keep coming back to this well. Then I'll just have water. And he's like, no, 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 she's not getting it, right? She thinks I'm talking about the physical. I'm talking about something deeper. I'm gonna have to go a little further with this. I'm gonna have to get a little more precise because she's not quite tracking with me. So then he says something that really surprises her. He says, "Um, go call your husband and then come back. Now, this is kind of a weird thing to say. It's like out of the blue. It's like, what? what? We were talking about water, living water flowing out, and now go call your husband. She's starting to get a little bit shaky here, right? She says to him, I have no husband. But she's nervous because she knows something that she doesn't want him to know. But she doesn't want to say too much because then he'll know. So she just says, I have no husband. But guess what? He already knows. Here's what he says. Jesus says to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. Technically, you're correct. The fact is, he said, you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. Now, why does he do this? That seems a little bit cruel. That seems a little bit mean to, like, point the, the, like, the sensitive part of her, the thing that's, like, a little bit she's embarrassed about and she's a little bit ashamed of. Why does he probe into that area? Why does he have to hit her with that, right? Here's why. Jesus knows that all of us are trying to quench a thirst in our soul. And we will try to quench that thirst with whatever it is that we can quench that thirst with. Sin is the misguided pursuit of something good. You know what this woman wants? She wants the same thing that everybody wants. She wants to be loved. She wants to be noticed. She wants to be admired. She wants somebody to think that she has some value. She wants somebody to think that she has some worth. But something got scrambled. Maybe when she was a kid. Maybe when she was young. We don't know. Something went haywire. And so now she's trying to quench that thirst with man after man after man after man. And it's not doing the trick. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm I'm not mad at your thirst. But the thing that you're using to fill that thirst or quench that thirst is not working. You're taking aim at a good thing. You're shooting at the bullseye, but you're missing it. You're not hitting the bullseye. You're not hitting the target. And I want to give you something that will quench your thirst. Why is, why is Jesus reaching into the point of her deepest sensitivity and her deepest pain? Because that is, it, it's only in those moments. It's only when we discover that we cannot quench the thirst inside of us that we're willing to open up our heart and say, maybe there's something else out there. 
Maybe there's a water. Maybe there's a spring that if I drink from, I will have my... I'm tired of pursuing things that don't actually fill the, the, the hunger and the thirst in my heart. I need something that's going to nourish me. I need something real. I need to experience something real in my life. And Jesus says, look, this is why I'm pointing this out. Not to condemn you, but to expose the thirst in your soul. Right? So he says, go call your husband. I know uh, you've had five husbands and now you uh, are living with somebody who's not your husband. And I love her response. Because now she knows that the, the, the game is up. She knows that we're not talking about water anymore. Okay? H2O is not, not on, the, on, the board, on the table right now, right? She knows that, and she's been exposed in this really intense way. And so she says this. She says, sir, um, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's like, you're saying something that is pretty intense. But she does what a lot of us do right when things get sensitive. She, she, does the, she wants to like kind of sidestep it, right? Because now it's getting too tender. It's getting into an area of her life that's too sensitive. She says, I can see that you're a prophet. And then she says this. I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. She says, okay, you got me, right? There's some stuff in my life that I need to address. But let's just not go there right now. Because, you know, the Messiah is going to come. God's out there. He, I believe in God. He's out there. He's somewhere. And someday we'll all know. We'll understand it better by and by. It will all become clear down the road. I don't really want to go too far down this path with you right now, sir. Because I'm a little nervous about the things that you're saying to me. I don't know if I want to expose that part of my life, right? And then Jesus hits her with this. He says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the Messiah. And I'm not just the Messiah. I'm the Messiah of your mess. I came all the way out here to this well for you. Because you are, you are struggling under the weight of your own mistakes. And you keep trying to fill your life with things that you think will satisfy. And they don't. And so I came all the way out here to be the Messiah of your mess. I'm the Messiah of your mistakes. You, don't, you made your bed, but you don't have to lie in it. I've come to pull you out of that bed. I've come to give you something that's going to transform your heart and your life. And not only will it transform you, it will pour out of you to others. I have come to be your Messiah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you just two more minutes. Jesus knows that when we experience these messes in our life, when we struggle with these sins in our life, when we keep missing the target over and over, we have one of two reactions. One of the, one of the reactions that we experience is condemnation. Condemnation. This is why she came out to the well at noon. Because this is a small town. And all of the women in this town come out to the well in the morning. They all come out together and they fill up their water for showers and for clothes and for drinking. And they all talk and they gossip and what's going on. And oh, did you hear about this? She doesn't want to be there for that because she feels condemned. She feels ashamed. She doesn't want to be there when other people are there. So she comes at noon in the heat of the day because she feels condemned. When we feel ashamed, we withdraw. We even withdraw from things that will heal us. 
People stop coming to church when they're sinning, which is the exact opposite of what, uh, of what the best thing would be for them to do. When you, Jesus said, I have come to heal the sick, not the well. I have, the church is a hospital. It's a place where you bring your pain. It's a place where you bring your sin. It's a, it's a place where you bring your mess. You don't hide it. You bring it. But she felt condemned. She had heard the women say, well, she made her mess. Now she's going to have to lie in it, right? And so she felt condemned. She didn't want to be there. Jesus said, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He didn't come to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He came to say, look, I want to do away with condemnation. I want you to experience liberty and life and peace and nourishment. The other way that we, we respond to sin when we, are, when we are experiencing a mess somewhere in our life is compensation. And compensation means we, take, we try to cover the weak parts of our life with the strong parts of our life or the parts that we perceive to be strong, right? How many of you, I'm going to wake you up, right, real quick. How many of you know the hairstyle called a comb over? Anybody know? The, it's, a, it's a great, it's a classic. It's a great hairstyle. And the comb over is, is like, I call it the Robin Hood because you take from the rich and then you bring, you know, you give to the poor. Um, I, was at, I, was at a, I was at the gym the other day and, and there was a guy in the locker room who came over and, he, and, he, and his hair, it was like hanging down to here. And I thought, that's such an interesting style. He's an older guy. And so then he sat down and then he did this thing with his hair. And he like just wrapped it and wrapped and wrapped. And by the end, perfect head of hair. It was fantastic. It was amazing, right? But he was, he was it actually, he, it was like he was, he was covering the bald spot with the Harry's part. We do this spiritually. I call this the spiritual comb over. This is when we hide the mess beneath the shine. We act like where everything is cool. We act like everything on the outside is good. And I, let me tell you two things about that. God is not fooled by that. And neither is anybody else. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the part about it. We all know that we're all a hot mess. We all know that everybody in here, that's the beautiful, that's what family is about. Family is when you can open up and relax and you can be real and you can say, hey, this is who I am. I'm struggling with this and I need some help with that. And can I get some, Lord, right? He said, look, I don't need you to experience condemnation and I don't need you to experience compensation because neither of those are going to heal you. But in fact, it's in the midst of your, of your condemnation and your compensation that I want to have some connection with you. This is how Jesus responds to sin. He wants to find you in the midst of your mess. He comes to you, he connects with you at the very point of your own suffering, at the very point of your own weakness. That is where he finds you. That is where he discovers you. And then I'm going to close this out. Next week, we're going to discover that he actually demonstrates our calling to us. Not just our, he doesn't just connect with us, but it's in the midst of our mess that we find our mission. Let me read just the very end of this passage and and tell you what happened. The scripture says that leaving her water jar, she finally realized we're not talking about water anymore. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. 
And he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. She became a missionary in the midst of her mess. Jesus used this moment to not only quench the the thirst in her own heart, but it poured out of her. She was not ashamed. She went to the very people that she had been hiding from and she said, I met a man who told me everything that I've done. He must be the Messiah. Come and meet him. And they came and met him and their lives were filled with living water. Let me ask you today. What if you exposed the thing that you're hiding or the thing that you're compensating for? What if you exposed that to God? And you said, hey, I'm going to give you the mess that I'm experiencing. I'm going to give you the mess that I, I'm the, the miss that I keep missing. The mark that I keep missing, the target that I keep, that I keep falling. So I'm going to expose that to you. I'm going to, I'm going to stop hiding it. I'm going to stop compensating for it. I'm just going to open it up to you, God. And say, I want you to come into my temper. I want you to come into my dishonesty. I want you to come into my lust. I want you to come into my fear. I want you to come into my anxiety. I want you to come into uh, whatever it is, whatever your, whatever your mess is. Come into that. Let me expose that to you, God. Because I think that you want to meet me in the midst of my mess, not just to heal me, but that you can then use me to heal somebody else in the midst of, your, of their mess. What if we do that as a church family? We become a safe place for people who are just in a mess in their life. All, and we don't say, well, they made their bed. They're going to have to lie in it. We say, hey, they made their bed and we want to come and be a part of helping them get out of that mess. We want to be with them. We want to be Christ to them. We'll transform the world if we do that. If we show that kind of love. If we bring people and God together in love. We will change the world. Because God doesn't want to just be with you when everything is shiny and sparkly and clean. God wants to be with you in the midst of your mess. Even when it's a mess that you made. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your presence here. Your Holy Spirit is with us today. God, we ask that you would be with every person in this auditorium who's struggling with whatever it is that they're struggling with, whatever whatever mark they're missing, whatever mistake they're making, whatever orientation of their heart that is, that is self-absorbed and self-interested and not, and not glorifying you, God. I pray that they would expose it, all of us. We would expose our mess before you and ask you into our heart today. Transform us, God, from the inside out. Be the Messiah of our mess. And make us into the men and women that you would have us be. Father, we praise you. We love you. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.